Amen. Praise the Lord. Amen. Well, turn uh, in your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Praise the Lord. That was just a marvelous, marvelous time of worship. That song worked out pretty good, I think, thanks to Keith and Andrew and what they could do with it. Um, kind of surprised me. I didn't know they were doing that song today. That's, that's great. That's encouraging. Uh, but we are back in chapter 2, and uh, we are going to be covering verses 14 to 17 today. Why don't we read uh, the text, and then we will pray and then get started. Uh, beginning in verse uh, 17, it says, But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to the one in aroma from death to death to the other in aroma of life to life. Sorry about that. Hopefully that fixed it a little bit. Verse 17, or let's do verse 16 again. To the one, an aroma from death to death, to the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Let's pray one more time. Father, we do come before you today and Lord, we are so grateful to be in Your Son in Christ, that we can speak in Christ with His authority as His representatives. Lord, thank You for causing us to triumph. Even in the midst of our trials and in the midst of our suffering, Lord, we triumph not because of us, not because of anything that we have done, not because of any talent or not because of any gift that we possess, But Lord, because of our union with Your Son, Jesus, You are causing us to triumph, as Romans says, to overwhelmingly conquer through Your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we resonate, I resonate with the words of the Apostle Paul here. Lord, as You lead us in triumph and as we become that fragrance of Christ, who is adequate for these things? Lord, we thank You that all of our sufficiency is wrapped up in you and in what you're able to do. We ask your blessing on this time. We ask you to come. We ask your spirit to fill our minds and our hearts. We ask your spirit to be with us, to be pleased, to move among us, and to apply his inspired word to our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, the title of today's sermon is entitled, God's Pleasure in preaching the gospel of life and death. God's pleasure of preaching the gospel of life and death. It's an amazing thing to have the gospel in our possession, brothers and sisters. It's an amazing thing to be uh, God's spokesman, to be His representatives, to be His ambassadors, to represent Him to the world. It comes with a very great weight. It comes with a really uh, major responsibility. And hopefully we can see a little bit uh, uh, about that today here. But I want to talk to you a little bit 
about these three about how God takes pleasure really in preaching the gospel. And the very first thing I want to point out, I want to point out three things, but the first thing I want to point out is that God takes pleasure in this because it spreads the knowledge of Christ. Now, we already looked at verse 14, but I want to revisit it just a little bit for us. Let's read verse 14 again. It says, But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. In every place. Now, we saw last week that this verse was spoken in a very significant context because Paul just got done dealing with all of the setbacks and all the problems and all the obstacles and all the opposition that comes when you preach the gospel, when it comes when you advance the gospel. And what Paul's point is, in the face of all this opposition, in the midst of all these trials, and in the context of suffering, nevertheless, lest anybody should be... uh, uh, deceived, God is triumphing in and through us. And we've been united to Christ, so we share in His triumph. Remember, He drew out that whole triumphant procession that was so common in the Roman world, the the Roman uh, uh, procession that paraded through the streets in cities and providences like Corinth that would speak of the victory of some general, some military conqueror. And Paul now very wisely using this language for and Christianizing this language for the context of the gospel. But here, Paul is focused so, not so much just in what God does in us, but through us. And we know that because he says it's all about what God does by manifesting. That's actually the verb that controls the whole context. That is what it's all about. God's manifestation of the knowledge of Him through us. That's what's going on. You know, this word manifest here literally means to make something visible. To make something visible. It appears in different contexts like, for example, the fact that Jesus appeared after His resurrection. He was made visible. There was a visible manifestation of Christ after His resurrection. It's also used of the parousia, the second coming of Christ, when Christ will once again reappear. He will, he will visibly, uh, 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 he, will, um, he will literally and He will physically return to the earth. There will be a physical, visible manifestation of Jesus Christ. In other words, it means that you are exposing something. And this was often used in the public square when someone would expose something in public. And that's exactly what God is doing through us. As the gospel is going through us and as we represent the gospel rightly, God is manifesting, as He says here, the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him. It is the knowledge of Christ that we are making manifest. That is what we are exposing the world to. We are exposing them to the knowledge of Christ. We are making the truth of Jesus Christ known. And I'm sorry that this keeps crackling. I really don't know what to do about it. I'll try not to move as much as possible, which is hard for me, especially when I'm preaching a text like this. But, uh, so you'll just have to excuse that. Um, but, but really getting back to this, he is manifesting 
If you look at Ephesians 3.5, the mystery that was hidden long ago, hidden away in God, in Christ, he makes this mystery known. He's making known all of his redemptive purposes, as we've already seen in chapter 1, verse uh, 120, all of God's redemptive promises, all the redemption that he promised, and all the past covenants, and all the past dispensations that God was working and speaking about his son, intimating about his son, this is all made manifest through us as we bring the gospel, as we preach the truth about the knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's an amazing thing, and the thing that I want to focus on here is that when we make the knowledge of Christ manifest, we are speaking both about beautiful and dreadful things. That's his point. This aroma has a twofold effect, and it is manifested not just by what we say, brothers and sisters, but also by what we do. Christian witness is a holistic idea. It is a It is a message that is backed up by a life, and the life is reflecting the message. That is to say that Christian witness cannot be reduced to simply what you say. It has to also also include how you live. You remember what Jesus told His disciples? Let your light so shine before men so that they will see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. But this is only half the truth, right? This is where the social gospel gets it wrong. And it's not just going across, you know, continental divides to dig a well for some poor tribe somewhere. And that is the gospel. As one professor at a Baptist university once told me, he realized that digging the well was the gospel. I said, well, that's not the full story. The gospel is also the message it is, in, it is a spoken message. It is a message of knowledge. You are imparting truth. It is a propositional message about what? The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you have not preached the gospel unless you have preached that truth. You can, live, you can be as nice as you want to people. You can, you, know, you can bring meals to your neighbors. You can mow your neighbor's lawn. You can, uh, you can be a good witness in the neighborhood. You can be the best worker at work. You can be a stand-up person, a very responsible person in your family. But if you do not open your mouth and speak about Jesus Christ, the reason why you're living your life in an upright reason, you have only given half the message. Now, we need both. We need the works and we need the message to go together. And this is how God is bringing the knowledge of Him. Notice where the sphere of this is, or even the scope of it is, in every place. I love that because, to me, it refers to a twofold reality. Number one, that it is sufficient for every place, every geographical location. And it's also relevant to every time, to every epoch, to every generation. The gospel will always remain absolutely relevant to whatever culture, whatever people, whatever time you're living in. So that you don't need to help the gospel. You don't need to edit the gospel. You don't need to modify the gospel. You don't need to make the gospel more palatable to the audience 
No, my friends, just preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let the gospel be that aroma that it is and let God accomplish whatever He wants to accomplish through it. God does not just take pleasure, though, in spreading this gospel, the knowledge of Him, but God also takes pleasure in using inadequate messengers or preachers. Look at verse 15, 16. He says, For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those that are being saved and among those that are perishing, to the one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life. And the phrase that I'm zeroing in on for making my point here, my second point, and who is adequate for these things? For these things. It's an amazing thing here, but he, he, he sort of he sort of erupts and explodes the metaphor that he was using earlier as far as being the fragrance of Christ. And if, as Paul has been using this pagan uh, parade or this, pra- this pagan practice, this pagan cultural norm, he finishes the Christianization process, we could say, by now using this language to refer of a true offering, to refer to true worship to God. Notice what he says. We are a fragrance of Christ to God. You see that? In other words, it is to God's advantage somehow. That's how the grammar's working. The question is, is to his advantage in what sense? Is it for his sake? That would mean something like for the glory of God. Or is it to his pleasure? I think the latter is true. Why? Because anytime you have the language of fragrance, anytime you have the language of aroma, you are touching on, and there are echoes in there, of Old Testament worship that is, that, that, that is rooted in the idea that God takes pleasure in sacrifices that are soothing and that are pleasing to Him. So they're like a sweet smelling aroma in the nostrils of God. And that's what it is when we take the message of God and we spread it to every place when we become a fragrance of Christ to God. He takes pleasure in it. But what's amazing is that Paul says he is not adequate, or he asks the question, who is adequate for these things? Kind of begs the question when he asks this, who is adequate? What's he talking about? Adequate to do what precisely? Adequate to do what exactly? Is it, is he, is it, does he feel inadequate simply to preach Christ? Does he feel inadequate simply to go around telling people facts about Christ? I think as he pondered the eternal consequences of this Christ fragrance and what it does, I think he was overwhelmed with a sense of the, the, etern- the eternality of the consequences of the message uh, and, and, and when he pondered this, I really believe Paul sensed a real sense of insufficiency, even an unworthiness. Interesting, this word that he uses here, hekanos, is the word that is used of the, uh, uh, John the Baptist. When John the Baptist says in Matthew chapter 3, he does not feel worthy, that's the word, hekanos, to do what? To undo the sandals of Jesus Christ. He didn't feel fit, adequate, competent. He didn't feel worthy, deserving. And I think that's right here, the Apostle Paul. He does not feel worthy to carry such a weighty message either to the, those being saved or to those 
who are perishing. Ultimately then, because that's what it's talking about, what Paul feels unworthy to do or inadequate to do is to bear the message of eternal life, of eternal condemnation. In other words, heaven and hell. In other words, who is adequate who, who is really, truly adequate among us, brothers and sisters, to rightly articulate and to adequately convey the depth and the weightiness of things pertaining to heaven and to hell. But nevertheless, that's the way that it is. God takes pleasure in using inadequate servants, inadequate messengers. God takes pleasure in using us to convey this message both to those who are being saved and those who are perishing. It's an interesting thing, but he feels this inadequacy to speak about hell among those who are perishing because, as he goes on to flesh out here, the aroma that we give off when we, when we bring the message, when we expose the truth of Jesus Christ to those who are, per- are perishing really is a compounded uh, uh, aroma of bad news. It is from one degree of death to another degree of death. It is from death to death. In other words, you are speaking to people about their spiritual condition now as well as speaking to people about their eternal condition later. You're speaking about the fact that not only are they without God now, they are without hope, as Ephesians chapter 2 says, because they're without Christ. They are blind because they, they're without Christ. They cannot see the truth of the glory of Christ. Uh, Paul talks about this sort of the same thing here in a parallel passage, right in, in chapter 4 of this book. Verse 3, he says, If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You see, they are blind. And I take that there to mean the God of this world, not referring to God. Some people attempt to translate it that way. That's not, I don't believe that's accurate. I think the context argues for the God of this age, which is synonymous to uh, Satan, who is the ruler of this age, the prince, the prince of, of this world. It is Satan. And, but there is that sense, of course, we do know that God does through His sovereign and His mysterious providence, He does harden whom He wills, as Romans 9 says. But in this context, we see something of the means by which God does this. It is the, is the satanic influence that permeates the whole world that aids in the blinding of the masses, in the blinding of those that reject the gospel. Reject the gospel. So Paul is saying, look, when you talk about Jesus to your unsaved loved ones, to people at work, to people in society, when you go out and do street evangelism, you will either be a scent of a stench of death or you will be a fragrance of life. And that is something, brothers and sisters, we are inadequate because we are not the source of that. It doesn't originate with us. It doesn't come from us. Ultimately, that fragrance does not emit 
out of something we ourselves do. But it's, as Paul goes on to say, we are earthen vessels. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. That's all that we are. We're just vessels. We just are bearers of the message of eternal life. And the natural man, the man who is devoid of the Spirit of God, the one who is unregenerate, does not have the life of God in him, does not have Christ residing in his heart, he will always and only see death in the message. You can preach any other kind of Jesus you want. But if you preach the true Jesus, if you preach the apostolic Jesus, trust me, it will be a stench of death. You can talk about a political Jesus, no problem. You can talk about the man upstairs theology, sure. You can talk about the Sunday school Jesus that little kids paint on, you know, their, well, they shouldn't be painting images of Jesus, but you know what I mean. The little stick figure Jesus. You can talk about the Jesus of the liberals who is separate from the Jesus of history. As long as you don't talk about the biblical Jesus, the world will accept it. They will become religious. They will become spiritual. But the minute you start talking about the true Jesus, the minute you start talking about the, 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 the blazing holiness of Jesus Christ, His sovereign authority over all the peoples of planet earth, the Jesus who will come to judge the living and the dead, the Jesus who said in John eighteen twenty eight that unless you believe in Me, you will die in your sin. Unless, when you start preaching about that Jesus, it will always be a stench of death. Paul felt himself to be inadequate as well because embedded in the message, manifesting the message, we speak of the glories of heaven and eternal life. Who's adequate for those things? Who can say that they are adequate to be an aroma of life to life? The glories of eternal life. And here, Paul is in the way he often does, speaks of this sort of already-not-yet eschatology where eternal life is conceived of being a present reality but also a future reality. We presently have eternal life, John 17, 3. But we are awaiting a future, ultimate, final installment of eternal life when we go to heaven, when Christ appears. 1 Peter 1.13 speaks to this very same thing. He says, prepare your minds for action. This is 1 Peter 1.13. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul, like many of God's servants, felt himself inadequate to bear such a lofty, weighty, eternal message with such weighty, everlasting consequences. Paul is in good hands here, and we are in good hands. It's a great thing to know that God is pleased to use inadequate people, or I wouldn't be up here. You wouldn't even be sitting here. If God were not pleased to use inadequate people, His plan of redemption would never be accomplished because His plan of redemption has always used inadequate people. Think of Moses. Interesting thing about Moses. When Moses stood, stood before God in Exodus 4, when God called him and said, you, you will be the one to deliver my people out of bondage. What does Moses say? Lord, 
I pray, please, Lord, I, I am not sufficient. He says, as a matter of fact, he says, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in times past nor now. Do you know that the translators of the Septuagint, that is translating the Hebrew into Greek, when they came upon this verse, they substituted the Hebrew word there, eloquent, for the Greek word, hekanos, the same word that Paul is using right here in 2 Corinthians to say, as Brenton's translation of the Septuagint says, Moses said to the Lord, Lord, I have not been sufficient in former times, neither from the time that you have begun to speak to thy servant. You see that? Moses was acutely aware of his insufficiency, and God nevertheless says, look, who's in charge, right? That's what he basically told Moses. Who's in control, right? Who is meticulously sovereign over everything, Moses? Is it not I? Is it not I who have made the mouth? Is it not I who have made the mute, the blind, the deaf? God has done all these things. Moses will be called regardless or in spite of his inadequacy. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.10, God made him what he was. He says, I am what I am by the grace of God. And God has a long legacy of using inadequate people, inadequate men, inadequate women to fulfill impossible tasks like giving some sort of or speaking the truth about eternal things like heaven and hell. Wish that I could just stay there for the rest of the day, but I'm going to try to finish this passage. Look at the next point. Not just that God takes pleasure in spreading the knowledge of Christ, not, not just that God takes pleasure in using inadequate messengers, but God also takes pleasure, listen now, in sincere preachers and in reverent preaching. Faithful gospel preaching has to always remain in the minority. I'm convinced of that. Rare are the pastors, the evangelists, the preachers who will fully preach the Word of God with no compromise, no matter what it costs them. They will never try to dilute the message. They will, not, they will never try to pawn off some watered-down gospel, neither in the pulpit nor in the streets. But they will always be committed and faithful to the mysteries of God, just like the Apostle Paul was. Paul was not in that group of preachers that he calls here those who peddle the Word of God. Notice he says, we are not like many. That's very interesting. He just isolates this group, the many, literally. We are not like the many, he says here, who are insincere, who are motivated, not out of a fear of God, but more out of a fear of man, not out of a fear of the holiness of God, the judgment of God, the fact that God will judge every man's ministry. No, they are more motivated about what people think, gaining a big enough audience, getting enough people into the church. They're motivated by uh, a pursuit of money, fame, influence, sordid gain, the types of things that Paul told Timothy, do not pursue. That's what these are motivated by. Interesting word he uses here. He says, we are not like many peddling the word 
of God. That is, the, that is what they're doing. They are peddling the Word of God. And the word that he uses here is really quite uh, amazing, this idea of peddling the Word. The Word is actually associated with a con man, a huckster, somebody who engages in bait and switch, somebody that, you know, when you go to buy something, they tell you it's the real deal, but then when you go home, you realize you bought a knockoff of something, okay? It's somebody also who manipulates a product. It's somebody who doesn't, who doesn't uh, uh, sell it to you for the right price. In other words, he's speaking of a cheat, a con man, a thief. And that's what people do when they adulterate the Word of God. They're giving you a fake. You're buying a sham. You're buying into a knockoff. You're buying something that is not genuine. Genuine. And I think from... I think from this passage alone, we can, we can find so many good principles of good preaching and how we are to handle the Word of God, namely with sincerity and with reverence. Those two things greatly, greatly needed in the Word. The Apostle Paul wanted nothing to do with the type of ministry that adulterated the Word of God. You know, so many churches... And here I've got I to gotta go after pastors. So many pastors are guilty of adulterating the Word of God today. I have been there. I have sat in the churches. I have listened to the preaching. I've heard the preaching on television, on the radio, where a pastor will take maybe a verse out of the Bible and he will just selectively pick it out of its context and just because it contains a word that he wants to talk about he will completely eliminate the context and talk about whatever he wants to contact he wants to talk about his context he uses it as a pretext for his own agenda but paul says in chapter 4 of this letter that he has renounced those kinds of tactics look at what he says in second corinthians 4:1 He says, therefore, since we have this ministry, as we received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame. And then to clarify what he means, this is what he means. Not walking in craftiness, we're not there yet, or adulterating the Word of God. In other words, it's to bring in an insincere way of ministry. It's to engage the ministry out of a shameful motive or out of hidden motives, ultimately adulterating the Word of God. That word adulterating, pretty much the same thing as peddling it. Peddling it. No. Paul tells Timothy, be diligent, Timothy, to present yourself approved to God, a workman that does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the Word of truth. See, you are to first and foremost be approved to God. You need to first and foremost know that this passes the litmus test of God, that God would be pleased with what you're about to preach and what you're about to say, that God would be honored by what you are about to say about Him. Acts chapter 20, verse 27, Paul says, I did not shrink away from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Some people are afraid to declare the whole counsel of God. I've had Christians tell me this on the street. They avoid certain parts of the Bible. I said, well, what do, you, what do you do with a verse like Psalm 5 where it says, God hates all those that work iniquity. 
Oh, we just don't talk about that. Why would, why would you want to, you, you know, depress people? Why would you want to make people sad? Why would you want to get people angry at God? I say, my friend, if God's word gets them angry at God, then they don't know God. They've never been born of God. And they're probably not saved. Because somebody that is saved loves the word of God. Like Jesus said, the scripture cannot be broken. Blessed are you if you do not stumble at my word. At my word. But this verse right here, verse 17, is an amazing verse for, for the preaching ministry. And I thought, you know, this is important for you whether you're a preacher or not, whether you're a teacher of God's Word or not, and whether you teach God's Word to any capacity, to your children, to one another, in small groups, in church, in evangelism. This is important to see the different elements that the Apostle Paul brings in here of what is good, healthy preaching and what any good and healthy church should look like when it comes to handling God's Word. He gives us several things. He gives us the dangers of preaching. He gives us the manner of preaching, the power, the authority, and the sobriety of preaching. You may say, wow, all that's in there? Yes, all of that is in there, and probably more. But I just want to focus on those few things. Number one, we've already seen the danger of preaching. When he says, we are not like many peddling the Word of God. This is what we are to avoid at all cost. He also then gives us the manner of preaching when he says, but as from sincerity. This kind of comes in the list of things that he's going to give us. But as from sincerity. He's already spoken about sincerity earlier in chapter 1, verse 12, when he talks about his overall ministry. The overall ministry of any good minister is a sincere uh, ministry. You remember what the word sincerity meant? It comes from two words. It means it speaks of sunlight and it speaks of judgment. Literally, it means to the light of the sun, hilly, uh, uh, hele, and then it comes from krino, which means to judge. In the ancient world, this word was used to judge something by the brightness of the sun. In other words, he's saying, do we stand up under the scrutiny of God's holiness? Do we stand up under the scrutiny of the standard that God has set out? Or are we going to fail? Are we going to be, uh, are we going to, are we going to have defects like certain maybe um, pottery would have defects in the marketplace and you'd go pick it up and this guy's trying to sell it to you, but you'd hold it up to the sunlight and there you find that it's full of flaws. The Apostle Paul depended on this, on this sincerity. He depended on the purity of his preaching, not in talent in preaching, not in eloquence in preaching, not in ability or gifts of preaching. What Paul was concerned with most was faithfulness in preaching. Faithfulness in preaching. He says in chapter uh, 11, he says, I consider myself not at the least inferior to the most eminent apostles, and then he says something very interesting in verse 6. This is 2 Corinthians eleven six. But even if I am unskilled in speech, in other words, maybe I'm not the best you know, speaker. Maybe I'm not the most eloquent. Maybe I don't have all the illustrations. Maybe he wasn't a Spurgeon, in other words, what he's saying. But, he says, yet I am not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way, we have made this evident to you in all things. That's a preacher. A preacher is someone who can make it evident in all things that he has a proper understanding 
of the Word of God, a proper understanding of the things of God. He also talks about having the proper power, power in preaching. Look at, I say that because of the next phrase. He says, but as from sincerity, but as from God. And there he gives us the source of his preaching where all true power in preaching comes from is not yourself, is not the preacher, it is from God. And therefore, the preacher needs to go to God to get that power. You better spend time with God. You better be saturated with God. You better have communion with God. You better be immersed with God if you want the power of God in your preaching. Trust me, I was very convicted studying this last night. It was driving me to seek God as my only source. Yes, the commentaries are good. Yes, the grammar is good. Yes, Greek exegesis is helpful and all these things. But ultimately, if I want real effectiveness in that, in the midst and the utilization of all those tools, I better be deriving my strength and my power for preaching from God Himself. He needs to be the source. He says in chapter 3, you just look over to the next chapter, verse 4, he says, such confidence we have through Christ toward you, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves. If a preacher cannot make that confession, he should probably step down from the ministry. If he cannot adequately say, look, nothing comes from me. We, I am not adequate in myself. I cannot do this ministry at Heritage Grace. I can't do it. I don't have the wherewithal. I don't have the, the ability. I don't have the literary, mental, administrative genius to run a church. It has to come from God. He says, but our adequacy is from God who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. The next thing is the authority in preaching. And I take that from the little phrase, we speak in Christ. Now, there are different ways you can take that phrase. As you say, we speak by, because we're Christians, union with Christ, or as some commentators have pointed out, we speak in Christ, meaning we speak in His authority. We speak as His representatives, and I think that is what He means. He's a representative of Christ. This is the authority in preaching. The, the pastor has no authority in it of himself. His only authority can come from this. If I'm, if I'm to persuade you to anything, it ought to weave in and out of the authority of Christ Himself. Paul saw himself as this ambassador, as his representative. He says in chapter 5, verse 20, we are ambassadors of Christ as though God were making His appeal through us. See, we're just the contour. We're just a vessel. We're just a servant. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he says in verse 1, Let a man regard us in this way, that we are servants of Christ. We are stewards of the mysteries of God. You see that? I'm on borrowed time. My ministry, I am not the shepherd. I'm an under-shepherd of the great shepherd of the sheep. That's it. My ministry is one that has been entrusted to me, committed to me by the great shepherd himself. And my, my greatest duty is to 
preach the Word or to cry the Word of God to you when I make my appeals to you. That's what Haddon Robinson said in a uh, great book on preaching. It's called Biblical Preaching by Haddon Robinson. He says, Not all passionate pleading from the pulpit, however, possesses divine authority. When a preacher speaks as a herald, he must cry out the word. Anything less cannot legitimately pass for Christian preaching. We are not to preach ourselves. And this is the last thing. Thank you for being patient. But this is real important, guys. Not only the right power, authority, manner, but also sobriety in preaching. And I get that from that last, that little phrase there. He says, we speak in the sight of God. Do you know that Paul was very intentional when he wrote that? There were other ways to say in the sight of God, but he uses a very specific way of doing it. He uses this rare adverb, katananti. He, he, he could have said it in other ways. He could have said it in a shorter way. He could have said it in a more common way of saying it, But he uses this adverb for a reason, because the verb often implies that you do something in the presence of someone who has the right or jurisdiction or authority over you, that has the ability to render a judgment over something that you're doing. And that's exactly what Paul's saying, that his preaching was done in the sight of God, meaning he was under God's lens. He was under the scrutiny of God. And God would test his heart. You see, my friends, when you understand that you are preaching, like right now, right now I'm trying to concentrate on that idea that right now I am preaching in the sight of God, under his lens, in his scrutiny, in his eye, I don't know how you can engage in frivolous preaching. I don't know how you can engage in handling the Word of God as some light little thing that you just use to get people in the door and manipulate to get money into the, you know, whatever. It's just, it's an abomination. Preachers are to be dominated, brothers and sisters, by a holy fear of God and a reverence for God so that when I come up here, I don't care if my microphone's crackling. I don't care if all the PowerPoint was exactly right. I don't care that none of you guys clapped at my video. What I need to care about is the fear of God, that God is going to hold me accountable for what I have written in here and what I am speaking out there. And if a man is not dominated by a fear of God in that way, if he does not tremble before the holy sovereign God that summoned him to preach in the first place, I'd rather that person not preach. That's why, brothers and sisters, I can't come up here. I'm sorry. I know this might offend some people. I don't care. I can't come up here in in tight jeans with a brohawk and dyed hair, and look, come up here like a Calvin model, right? Even though I'm way, pretty far from that. But you know what I mean. I'm not here to be cool. I'm not here to impress people. I'm not here to make people laugh. I'm not here to get as many people to come through the doors because, man, he's preaching something everybody can relate to. No, no, no. Remember what Paul said. We are a stench either of 
we're a fragrance either of death to death or life to life. The reality is, is that you really truly preach this. Some people are just not going to like it. They're just not going to like it. And I think there is much, way too much triviality in the pulpit today. Conversational preaching is at an all-time high right now. Pastors that get, come into the pulpit and they just have a conversation with you. They're just talking to you. So that what you were doing out in the hallway is no different than what we're doing now. My friends, that is not preaching. Preaching is an event. It is a supernatural phenomenon. It is a holding forth, setting forth the word of the living God himself. Preaching is not just a conversation. Preaching is not just a lecture. Preaching is not just a history lesson. Preaching is not just sta standing up here and reading statistics. Preaching is a man who is trying to uphold the Word of God as a faithful steward of the mysteries of God and being empowered by the very Spirit of God to speak that Word in the power of God. That is what preaching is. So we need to recover, I believe, we need to recover Paul's gravity for preaching today because there's so much light, fluffy, nobody gets hurt kind of preaching. No one goes to hell. We don't even know if there is a hell. The emergent church is real big on this. We all just sit around on a couch. We take communion with Kool-Aid as a DJ is up here, you know, mixing his beats, and um, nobody ever says anything truthful about the Word of God or dogmatic. Everyone just kind of share your opinion. Nobody judge anybody. I'm sorry, friends, this book is full of judging. This full is book of, full of judgment, and it's not ours. It's God's. It's just ours to proclaim, not to edit. Let's pray. Father, Lord, who is adequate for these things, neither preacher nor church member, so that everyone here has to 100% rely on your power. 100% we have to rely on your adequacy. We have to rely on you making us fit because we are not fit in and of ourselves. And so God, I pray, please, Help us to live lives of dependency that fully rely on you. That doesn't, Lord, we, we, we need your strength when we talk to our family members. Father, we need your strength when we talk to our co-workers. Father, we need your strength when we talk to our children, those moms that spend the majority of their time, hours of the day, pouring into their children, must rely not on the flesh, not on circumstance, not on status, but on God in order to pour into their children faithfully, consistently, and biblically. And so, Father, Lord, we pray, please make us reverent over Your Word, not in a snub sort of cold, stale, staunch kind of a way. But Father, as the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians, I did not come to you with eloquence of speech, but I came to you with fear and with trembling when he preached the gospel 
to them. God, remind us of our own inabilities. Remind us of our own transient nature. Remind us, Lord, of how fragile we are and how fallible we are and how easily we can go astray. Protect us from all of these things. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, I just wanted to close with reading 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, I think really captures the essence of everything Paul was saying in Corinthians. He says, For you yourselves, brethren, know that our coming to you was not in vain, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in the midst of much opposition. For our exhortation did not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts.